Um, All right, everybody, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew 9, and uh, I'm going to get there eventually, I'll say that. Um, We're in a series right now called Vision Sundays, and we've been talking about who we are as a church, where we are going as a church, and this, the final week, we're talking about how we get there. Now, this is the week that I enjoy the most, because as a pastor, I spend a lot of my time thinking about the how. How do we go about doing the ministry that Jesus has called us to do? But I find that it's often difficult to translate that to those down in ministry, spending as much time thinking about these things. So there's a lot that I want to kind of explain for you this morning. And so I'm going to talk really fast, and I apologize if it's too fast. I've already been told I talk too fast, so you know, hang in there. Um, and uh, and I'll, try to, I'll try to slow down as much as I can. But there's a lot that I need to be able to really, I think, kind of explain and unpack for you as I explain how it is that we're going to move forward. Um, and uh, I want to make this as quick as possible, but just to review, the gospel is essential. Um, the gospel is the center and the foundation of everything that we do as a church. But the gospel is also corruptible, which means that there are times when people will remove things from the gospel, add things to gospel, or just out of a desire to make it more palatable for those that we want to have believe it, we are prone to often change the gospel in slight ways. And so as a church, it's important as we move forward that we be a gospel community, a community of people built on the gospel. And the way that we do that is first and foremost, we spend time in God's word, understanding the gospel, being reminded of the gospel because it is evident throughout all of scripture. That's the biggest way that we keep um, from allowing it to be corrupted or allowing it to take a back seat and become unessential to what we're doing as a church. So I challenge you guys to read your Bibles if you're not already reading your Bibles. And I'm giving you guys a reading plan. If you need one, that's, there's a, a, a bookmark in your bulletin um, for that. Now, um, when I talked last week, I talked about where we're going. And I said this, I said, we are going to the lost and we are going to the undiscipled. Why? Because if we are following Jesus... That is what he called his followers to do. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He gave them a great commission to go and make disciples. The very vehicle by which we grow as Christians, in fact, is this process. So it's not like you get good enough to be able to do this. It's that Jesus called people from day one to going out and reaching the lost and seeking to make disciples who themselves would go make disciples. It's a tough process. It's a lifelong process. And it's through that process that Jesus refines us, that we're sanctified and that we grow in our faith. And so the big deal about that is this, at OCEC, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then on day one, you're a missionary. On day one, you're asking the question, what does discipleship look like for me? And how do I even be discipled so that I can go and disciple others? Not just take in, take in for myself and think that my whole life is about that as a Christian, but how do I give out to others? Because that seemed to be the way Jesus intended for it to be for his followers. And last week, I kept asking that question, do you see what I see? When we look at what Jesus did, when we look at the way he ministered, when he looked at his priorities, do you see those things? Because that's what I see. And so that's why that's where we're going as a church. This morning, we talk about the how, but before we get to it, because there is specifically a how, and it's important, I want to say this. The reason the, the where we're going is so difficult for many of us is because it is so contrary to the way that we are wired 
even as a culture. Now, I wanna say this right now. When I say culture, I'm talking about something that affects all of us, okay? Not just young people, not just people that live in a certain area. Culture of, is around us, and if you're alive, then you're a part of culture, okay? So, so deal with it, all right, whether you like it or not. Now, at any given time, as culture changes, there are often benefits and drawbacks when it comes to applying scripture in the life of a person in a culture. Pastor who has done a phenomenal job of unpacking our culture is uh, Tim Keller. He has done so much work in looking at how do we view things. And I wanna, I wanna, I wanna give you an example of something that he kind of points out that I have found so valuable. There's a huge difference between what we would call a traditional culture and the modern culture, okay? A traditional culture says this. It says, I sacrifice my individual desires for a role that I have whether it's as a member of a family, as a part of a community, as a part of a larger organization. Traditionally, I am a part of a group. And the more I give up for that group, the better I am, it seems. That's a traditional culture, okay? So for the common good, for my family, my community, my people, the more I sacrifice, the more I'm fulfilling my purpose in life, which is to help make life happen for all of us. And so in this culture, the hero is the one who gives of themselves for everyone else, okay? That's, you're like, yeah, what hero wouldn't do that, right? Well, here's where it gets interesting, right? In a modern culture, it is completely flipped. The modern culture would say this, I reject the expectations. I reject the traditions. I reject even the roles of my family, my society, and other people for the freedom to find and express my own identity, okay? I, I, I turn away from those other things that have to do with groups of people and what they need from me. And I say, in the current culture, the only way that I can really live a life that is meaningful is to turn away from those things and say, how can I be free to pursue my identity, my personal destiny? All right, and this is not a new, a super new idea, right? Climb every mountain, right? Have you ever seen The Sound of Music, right? What's that movie about? It's about a woman who walks away from a group of nuns to find her identity in her own destiny, right? Through her individual freedoms. Now, I am not saying that that's one of those is wrong and one of those is right. A common mistake that people make is just saying, Every generation that goes by, oh, this, oh, things aren't the way they used to be. Things should be the way they used to be. But that's not necessarily true because a lot of actual freedom has come from our current culture. Back in the day, people were stuck. You had to do maybe what every member of your family did. Uh, Tim Keller, when he talks about this, he says his grandfather grew up as a, from a line of shoemakers in Italy. And his grandfather made shoes, and then his father made shoes, and then it was his time, and they said, they said, make shoes. And he said, I don't wanna make shoes. And they said, well, here's your options. You can make shoes in this town, or you can move to another town and be a nobody, but nobody's gonna, let, gonna take you seriously in this town unless you make shoes. Because everyone knows that's what we do here. He moved to America, where that expectation was not as strong, and he experienced the freedom to be someone different, okay? So there is benefits that comes from the culture that we live in now, but what that culture makes us particularly bad at 
is seeing the mission of God and saying, I will give up my own individual agenda for the sake of that thing. We only see the cost, right? Because we go, that costs me the freedom to do this thing. It's why the idea of the gospel has often become something that is only, it only makes sense to us when it gives us freedom, right? The gospel gives me the freedom in Jesus, the freedom in Christ to be who I want to be, to live as I want to live, and the more, and here's the interesting thing is, in, in, in modern day culture, a hero, a real hero is somebody who says no to everyone else. No to the expectations, no to the church, no to the family, no to the rules, no to the community, and says, I'm going to do what I need to do for me. We respect that now. We admire that now, in fact. No better illustration of this, I think, than how we recruit or have recruited for the military, okay? Back in the day, it was simple. Fall in, answer now, in your country's hour of need. We need you. Join up. Even not in wartime, right? I want you for the U.S. Army. That's about, that's about as creative as we got. I want you for the U.S. Army. And out of a sense of, of duty and sacrifice of myself for this greater thing, yes. But eventually, as recruitment tapered off and as response tapered off, the Army recruiters themselves began to realize like people don't respond to that anymore, as much anymore, because our culture has changed, because that doesn't carry with it an inherent value. And so you see this, right? Army, what is the slogan of the army? Well, this was kind of old, I guess. That's like a, totally a 90s commercial, but be all you can be, right? And now, right, oftentimes we associate the military with like something that if you join up, they will give you the skills and the abilities and the, and the diversity and the freedom to be able to make yourself into something wonderful, right? Now, that's not to say that people don't join the military now for selfless reasons, because they do. And people don't join the military now to serve their country, because people do. But this is an indication of how much our value has often even changed, okay? So if we're going to the lost and to the undiscipled, why would we do that? <laughs> why, if it requires turning away from something that we find a lot of value in, which, are our, which is our ability to say, here's what I'm actually going to live for, okay? Okay, I'll, I'll follow Jesus, WWJD, right? I talked about that last week. I'll, when I have to make a tough decision, I'll try to think about what Jesus would do. But I'm not actually going to go where he was going, because that's, that would involve giving up my freedom to do that thing. So Why? A lot of people outside the church ask the question, why? Like, why this? Why community? Why people? Why roles? Why tradition? Why the expectation that comes with those things? Why the church? Why an institution? Why? Why a set of beliefs that's already there? Why not I find something new for myself? Or better yet, that I just be able to kind of piece things together? Why not enjoy the same freedom as others who can decide what they want and don't want out of any beliefs that they see? They say, look at the circumstances, the challenges, the things in my life. I want to allow those things to make me, to give me an individual set of beliefs. Even beyond that, it gets more difficult. It gets more challenging because we live in a post-Christian society, which means that if Billy Graham came to town today and everybody was like, did you hear someone's coming to talk about this guy, Jesus? That there wouldn't be millions of people showing up saying, 
Jesus who? Tell me more, right? Instead, people would be saying, I've heard about Jesus. I know about that. At least I think I know about that. I have some experience with the church. Oh yeah, here's my story. Here's my history. The majority of people, the overwhelming majority of people in the country in which we live would say, um, I, I like, yeah, I know what I need to know. I've experienced it as much as I need to experience it. And I'm not really that interested, but thanks. But no thanks, right? So even in a post-Christian society, how then, why then would we say we as the church are going to go to the lost and we're going to go to the undiscipled if it's that challenging, if it requires denying ourselves, and if it's to a people who oftentimes are like, I've already encountered this, so don't worry about it. I'm good. And the answer is, honestly, because it's true. That's the answer. The answer is because it's truth. It's true like fire is true. It is true like ice. It is true like gravity. It is true like we need air to breathe and food to live. God is real. His word is true. Jesus is life and anything else is death. So if we believe that, then we must respond. So if our church is going to train and equip missionaries and disciple makers, that is the how. And I'm going to show you what I mean by that. In Matthew 9, 9 through 13, it says this. This is Jesus bringing Matthew into the fold. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What we see here in the way that Jesus is interacting with these tax collectors and sinners is we see what it is that we must do if we are going to reach the lost, if we are going to disciple those who are not yet discipled. And it is first and foremost this, that we have to live as disciples and missionaries that Jesus actually went to these people who did not yet know him, who were unlikely to come to the temple. He was a Jewish rabbi in most people's minds. He, uh, he knew more than people did as they were teaching in the Jewish temple. So he could have stayed there easily and just said, they'll come to me if they're interested. The last place you would expect to find a Jewish rabbi is eating with sinners and tax collectors, reclining at their table. I mean, they didn't even have chairs. He just kind of laid there in the most casual way possible. It, it is honestly like the last thing anybody would have expected to see in Jesus. And so when, the, when the Pharisees show up, they say to his disciples, like, are you re really him? You're following him? Why does he even eat with sinners and tax collectors? Clearly, all the stuff he was teaching in the synagogue that we weren't really sure about, look at this. Look at how he lives. Look at who he lives with. And Jesus' response to them is, you should have learned this because it was in the Old Testament. This is actually a quote from the Old Testament. Go and learn what it means. That God desires mercy, not just sacrifice. 
What we must do in terms of the how is if we are called to this, to reach the lost and to make disciples, then what we must be as a church is a place that will train and equip disciple makers and a church that will train and equip missionaries. That is what we must do. Now, that's not an easy process. And there's a lot in, in just who we are as a church. And I don't say that because of OCEC. I say that because of the way all church tends to function. That makes this a challenge. But it's how we get there. And the reason it's how we get there is because there's no other way to get there. It's this is how we get there as a church. We see through what Jesus did with these people, number one, relationships, okay? Number one, Jesus spending time with a smaller group of people, developing a relationship with those people. He's just eating a meal with them. And we see this again and again in the ministry of Jesus. We see relationship be the mode and the method by which discipleship happens. Jesus, does he have a relationship with the disciples? I think you could say that. Evangelism is how it happens, through relationship. We see this in the church long after Jesus is gone. The reality is that we can only impact as many people as we can have real relationships with. This is a hard truth. This is something that many of us don't like that you can only really impact the number of people that you can actually have real relationships with. And I'm talking about meaningful spiritual impact. I'm not talking about as like a third grade teacher, okay? Because you can impact a room full of students, so don't, don't think that's what I'm saying. I'm saying for what we're being called to as disciples, as followers of Jesus, as the church, if we want to have a meaningful impact, and if we want to see this go where it needs to go, then it's going to be through relationships. And for many of us, that's going to be a lot slower, or the scale's gonna be a lot different than what we're often used to. Think about it for a second. We can spend the next 20 years trying to say, let's just, let's bless people. Let's bless people with any random act of kindness that we can come up with, okay? We'll bless people as much as we can in any way that we possibly can think of. You know, pay for their gas, do something for them, whatever they want. Then we'll put a big speaker on the top of our church and we'll proclaim Ed's sermons out to the whole city because that's what we need, right? And then we'll just, we'll just like blare them out there 24-7 all the time. And if people want to hear them, they can drive by, they can hear them. My wife's like, oh my gosh, that sounds so awful. That's my life. <laughs> Then, we'll, then, we'll, then we'll, we'll hand out some stuff and we'll put up a bunch of signs and we'll walk around with signs. And then at the end of the day, we'll just kind of be like, you know what, well, whether we see people or not, we can know that we probably made some, we made some impact. Even if it was small that we did something, okay? Which may be true, right? Or we could slow down enough, we can make room enough, and we can step out enough to really get to know people that we don't know and get to know well some of the people that we do know. If everybody in this church significantly impacted the lives of two people, we would be more fruitful as a church than the majority of churches in America. I say that as a pastor knowing what we call fruitfulness and that I would say, I'm not sure that that's the fruitfulness that we think it is, which I'm gonna explain in a second. If you significantly impacted the lives of two people. If you discipled somebody, if you led someone to Jesus, you're officially fruitful. You're multiplying in a way that would be significant if the church could do this. But oftentimes, because our sights aren't set on people as much as they ought to be, 
They're set on other things. We miss the opportunity oftentimes to even do that. Now, relationships are hard. They take time. They take a lot from us. We all know that. And so objection number one, hang on a second. What if, bear with me here. What if we got some people who were really good at maybe organizing and putting some things on? And we would call these things maybe programs. And then we could get everybody together, right? All the people could come to something or what we do and what we put on. Maybe we could create a system of discipleship that would be so great. We could all sit down in a room together and pull an all-nighter and say, we're not getting out of this room until we got a plan. And then we get out and we say, now all everyone has to do is become a part of the plan that we've developed, right? All everyone has to do is show up at the thing that we're going to have. And then if we do that, can't we get a whole lot more people affected and impacted than just like the two people that you're talking about? Just this relationship thing that you're talking about that frankly sounds exhausting. And I can just tell you right now, this season of life, not sure it's going to happen for me. We are going to do this through relationships, not programs. And there's a reason for that. And it's because if we're honest with ourselves, and we meaning the whole, the big church, big C, if we're honest with ourselves, these things don't still have the impact that they may be used to. Even the, and yet we often continue to rely on them and expect them to have that impact. What do I mean by that? Programs assume that if we can just get people to become part of something, if we can get them to join a group or a ministry, that we can help them and reach them and show them Jesus. Because of that, numbers matter a lot. How big something is, how many people come to something, how many people come to your church, how many people come to your thing that you throw on. It matters a lot. I've been a part of it. When I was in high school, I became a Christian in high school. I went to two youth groups because we moved. Um, and, uh, and one youth group was a part of a 30 kids in it. And it was a highly relational youth group. There wasn't a time in my life in that youth group when I didn't have an adult who was in some way a person that I could look up to and talk to directly about something. And there was not at least one or two friends in that youth group who were people that kept me accountable in some way. I mean, like, it, that's what it meant to be a part of a group like that. I then also went on to become a part of a much bigger youth group with over 100 kids in it. It was a very impressive youth group. Did a lot of great things. Everybody got really pumped up about how many kids we brought to camp every year. That was the big thing. How many kids came to camp? How many kids came to camp? One year it was one bus. One year it was two buses. I was there like three years after the three bus year, and everyone was still talking about it. You remember the, the year we took three buses? You remember the year we took three buses to camp? You remember the time? We had this huge student leadership. We had kids doing all these things, serving, putting everything on. We had a big student band. We had all this stuff. Everybody was involved and connected and doing things. And when you looked at it from the outside, you were like, look at this thing. This is amazing. And then the craziest thing happened. We all graduated high school. And the overwhelming majority of the students that were at the larger group I was at just disappeared. They were like, that was something I did at one time in my life, and now I'm on to something else. And the people that had relationships didn't. Now, I'm not saying that because it was big that it was bad. Because I've been a part of, I've led groups that were large since then of students that I think we're relational and that I think we're making an impact in people's lives. But the fact of the matter is, if we rely on programs to do this, then we're gonna care about how many people are coming to what they're coming to, we're gonna have to make things a certain way, and then in the end, we're gonna measure it by that. And we really like these things because 
honestly, you can have some, a few people who are kind of professionals, put them together, put them on, make them happen, and then everyone else maybe can just have a job, or we just know that if we participate, then we're fulfilling the Great Commission. Okay, this is doable. We can do this. The staff and I have been reading this book called The Trellis and the Vine, and it's such a great um, metaphor for how ministry works in the church. It's like, imagine that you have a vine in your backyard that you want to grow, right? This vine represents the ministry that God has given us. God has said, spread the word of the gospel and evangelize to people who do, and, and disciple those who are not yet discipled. And by doing that, you'll see fruit and growth. And what does the Bible say fruit and growth looks like? It's like a plant that grows. It's going to get bigger and bigger and grow more and more. So what we need is we need a church full of people who are vine dressers, who are people that know how to grow and cultivate and help nourish and strengthen the vine, right? But you can't just grow a vine by itself. What do you need? You need a trellis. You need something to grow the vine on. And so the church very wisely since the beginning, I mean, you see this all the way back in Acts. In the beginning, you see a structure, right? You see the church say, no, but we need to have some structure because we do. We need to have a way for as the vine grows, for it to continue to be handled and managed, for us to stay connected as a group, for us to have avenues that people can be intertwined with one another. And so we need the trellis if we're going to have the vine. But unfortunately, the majority of churches nowadays have spent so much time and spent so much time building a trellis to the neglect of the work of the vine. And it's caused a lot of us to stop and ask the question, am I a trellis worker or am I a vine worker? Do I just expect that God's going to make it grow? And if it doesn't, just be like, oh, well, I guess it wasn't going to happen. That's on him. I build the trellis. And there are some places that have the most amazing trellis that you've ever seen. But a tiny, insignificant, struggling, weak vine. And that's because the workers are not vine workers. Now, the other hard thing about this is that um, saying that programs are going to get us there, saying that um, systems and, and things like that are going to get us there is because those often come, if we're honest, they often come from a place of us going, maybe if I give them what they, maybe if we do more of what I want, then it will be what, what they need, okay? Maybe, maybe if I can just find a better way to do what I want, to see happen in the church, then that that will somehow lead to them having what they need. This is like if I'm working in the backyard of my son and we encounter something, I don't know, that we have to take care of. And I go, uh-oh, I'm stumped. Tegan, what should we do? And he goes, well, obviously we should have ice cream, right? <laughs> you all know that person. That person who's like, well, I can tell you what we should do right now is we should stop and have some ice cream because that's what that person would do in every situation, right? And we all have that thing. Yeah, amen, right? Amen from the ice cream eaters, right? We all know what it's like to go, oh, I know that person. And they always have the same solution to every problem, right? They always tackle everything the same way, right? Why? Because it's what we want it to be. It's the solution that we're hoping it will be. And so we say, maybe if we can just have a nicer church and have better parking and have nicer music and have better teaching and maybe if we could have cooler programs and if we can be a friendlier place and have a stronger program for the things that our kids are a part of and maybe if we can get good at all those things, then people will come and they will hear the gospel and respond and disciples will grow. But when we're honest, we want those things because we want to see those things because we want to see those things 
not because we have seen them lead to growth of the vine. In fact, what we come to find is that the things we think that will reach the lost end up just making us compete with each other over other Christians because they're what we want. Instead, what they make happen is what has happened in the church in America today, which is the majority of church growth is no more than transfer growth. It is people moving from one church to another and then moving to another and then moving to another. As each church finds a newer and better way to, to meet the needs that we now have that are ever-changing. So we say, let's have a big, huge event with music and games and giveaways and a maypole and an archery contest and a pieting contest because it's going to show people how much fun it is to come to church because people are not Christians because it's just not fun enough to come to church. And is that why people are not Christians? Is that why people are not being discipled? Because it's just not fun enough. Or is that why we often aren't happy at the place that we're going to church? It's because it's just not fun enough, right? It's because it just doesn't meet some of the needs that another place can meet. Or we say, let's have an, if we could just find a new study to go through, if we could just find a better book to go through, if we could just have a new class, then it would take care of this problem because that's what I want. We say, maybe if we just raise the bar. I can't tell you how many, how many times I've sat with people and we talked about discipleship, we talked about evangelism, and they'd be like, you know, the problem is this. Simple, nobody wants to hear it. We just need to raise the bar, right? Talked with another group of people that are constantly saying, you know what we need to do? The problem is we gotta lower the bar, right? We just gotta lower the bar. I'm like, it's so weird to me because it's almost like you want it to be up here and you want it to be down here and you just want us to have these things. I call this the dirt bike ministry approach and it's because at my last church, there were all these guys coming up to me going, here's the thing, Ed. I know, I know you're trying hard and, and I respect that, but I think what you gotta realize is if you could just get guys to do something they like, they would come to Jesus and they would become disciples. So why don't we go dirt biking? If we could just have a weekend, maybe twice a year, where we go dirt biking and then we, and then we get off the dirt, I apologize, okay, if you love dirt bikes, this is not against dirt bikes, okay. And then, and then we could, we could kind of hang out afterwards and we could talk about Jesus, maybe have a devotional. I think that would really lead to the kind of reaching out that you're talking about. And I'm like, that's so crazy because the, you're telling me this because you have eight dirt bikes and you don't want to do anything else, okay? And so, like, and, and so then the person's like, so if you just plan it, Ed, because you're the professional, and if you get it all done, you put, put, advertise it, maybe um, I'll come to that. I would come to that. I've had, I've had people ask me about dirt bike ministry. I've had people ask me about self-defense ministry, outreach opportunities. We need to have a self-defense class. I've had people say to me, do you know what's wrong with young people today? And I say, what? Because these are always fun conversations. And they say, they don't know the basics of life. We need somebody to come in and teach kids how to balance a checkbook. I'm like, no, we don't. Those don't exist anymore. But they're like, we need kids to come in and balance a checkbook. We need kids to know how to change their oil. I'm like, I can, I can show you with receipts that it's cheaper to get your oil changed than to change your oil, okay? That's partly because I always break something when I'm doing it. But, and I've had somebody say this to me. Like, so, so if we could just have like a thing where we like taught kids how to like balance a checkbook and how to change their oil, that could be like a huge outreach for the church. I'm like, really? That's crazy because you have a bunch of kids 
And I'm kind of feeling like you just want your kids to learn that stuff maybe at the church, you know? And I say this not to say like, oh, everybody should feel bad because you've ever wanted things at the church. I'm saying, let's be honest, right? Let's say like, there are the things that I would love to see happen at the church. And it's okay to say that. And it's okay to want some of those things to happen and talk about them happening. But let's not say, okay, that if we just did a better job of what we want, if we just had a better Easter service, then people would come. Now, the truth is, people do come. And the truth is that people often come during those things. And so it is vitally important that we as a church be accessible to people to come. That we ask the question of, how does this come across to somebody who's not used to being here, right? But... Why do we do the things that we do? The other thing that these programs tend to do, which is the reason why I don't want to do this looking at programs, but through relationships, is because of the fact that, and we talked about this last week, so I won't say a lot about it. Programs take the idea of spiritual gifts and they reduce them to jobs. And then that's all you ever get to do in the church, right? Because what happened is for, gen- for decades and decades, churches have done uh, lots of programs. And what we say is, we go, I, have like th- I got like 30, like 30 jobs, like 10 jobs, 15 jobs I need to fill. And so we say, hey, you have that gift, you have that gift, you have that gift, you have that gift. If you can do that thing, if we can put it on well, then you're fulfilling the Great Commission. You're using your spiritual gifts. You're making disciples by just doing that thing. And the reality is we mess up gifts with the role that we have, right? And we say, that's your role now, because I cannot tell you how often I encounter people who say, listen, I do worship. That's, all, that's what I do. So I'd like to let you know that if you could just give me a chance to do it, please, then I will be fulfilling the thing that God wants me to do, Right? I have the gift of administration. I have the gift of organization. I have the gift of teaching, right? So if you just give me the opportunity to do that, and it becomes the only way that we know how to be a part of what's going on here is by having a job, right? We say like, if I'm not doing that thing that I've always been good at doing, then what's my place here? Well, your place here is the same as the rest of us. You are meant to reach the lost. You are meant to make disciples who make disciples, Now, we all have individual gifts that contribute to that, that help that, and we need them in the church, and I want to use them in the church, but that's not our role in the church, and that's something that if we say, oh, we can do this by just planning some things, then that's what will happen, is we'll all go, okay, good, I signed up for a thing, I'm done, I did it, whew, that was close, he was talking about some scary stuff for a while there, but we got got away, right? We see people... Instead, not as cogs in our wheel, as resources for our projects, but as individuals, each at their own stage of gospel growth. And our goal is for each person to take a step forward. Growth here doesn't mean just that you're involved and that you, and that you serve and that you do something, although we value those things. Growth is that you take the next step of faith in front of you. And that's going to be different for all of us. But how hard is it to take that next step of faith when you're alone? How hard is it for you to expect someone outside the church to take, take a step of faith towards Jesus if they don't have anyone there alongside them? Anyone in a real relationship with them? We have to redefine essentially what it means to be an active part of the church. This is a quote from that book that we read, um, that we had been reading um, for a while as a staff. It says this, whatever the reason, there is no doubt that in many churches, maintaining and improving the trellis constantly takes over for tending the vine. 
We run meetings, we maintain buildings, we sit on committees, we appoint and look after staff, do administration, raise money, and generally tick the boxes that our denomination wants ticked. Somehow this tends to happen particularly as we get older. We start to tire of vine work and take on more and more organizational responsibilities. Sometimes this may even be because we are perceived to be successful vine growers. And so we get out of vine growing and into telling other people about vine growing. Now, I don't say this as a critique. If you serve in this church, don't stop serving in this church, please, okay? Don't, don't get off the committee, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it can become easy for us to say that's all I need to do, right? That by doing that, and what we have to make sure that we do as a church, if we're gonna do this together, is we have to say, how do we keep an eye on the trellis and how do we keep an eye on the vine, right? How do we have vine workers? Not just trellis workers. The other thing that we see in Jesus um, eating with these sinners and tax collectors is this. We see that people are being sent rather than the expectation, again, that we bring, right? The idea that, that, that people will come to us, that someone will come to me. But instead, we see in the Gospels and we see in Jesus' way of doing ministry, ascending. He is sent by the Father to us, God's people, or to us, God's children. Jesus is sent to us. Doesn't need to go, right? Jesus goes out from the religious community that he might otherwise be comfortable in to eat with sinners and tax collectors. And what does he do with his disciples? What does he do with the apostles? He sends them out. And what do they do with the people in their churches? They send them out. This is done by sending, not by bringing. It is done by all of us finding out what that means to actually be a sent person. We must go to our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our family, and our friends, and we must be a bridge to them. It means that instead of just wanting to become a bigger church, that we look to plant churches, that we look to multiply churches, that we say we want there to be more than just addition on top of what we have now. That's the, that is the mentality of sending versus the mentality of bringing, right? The mentality of bringing says the bigger and better we get, the bigger and better we are. Versus the more that we send out, the more multiplication can come from that. We cannot be satisfied with addition. We want to see multiplication. Now this is hard for us because sending involves, this is gonna sound depressing, but sending involves death. There is death to that. Just as a seed must die in order for a plant to be produced, when you send someone out to do the work of the Lord, you let them go. And that's a hard thing to do initially. But we have to recognize that even to ask are the very people, like all of us here in this church, how can we together go beyond the walls of this church, beyond the walls of our own homes? How can we go? Not just in physical body, go. But go in the most meaningful and important way, which is with our relationships, right? Because those are the most valuable commodity that we all have. Jesus says this also in uh, Matthew 9, later on after the passage we are looking at, this, this says this, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus says the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. This passage is no less true today than it was when he originally said it. Talk about faith, right? Believing those words. Believing that Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are what are few. I think there's an identity crisis in the church, and I say this again, like globally in the church, and I think the identity crisis is this, that, we don't, that we're not doing this, that we're not actually living as those who are meant to reach the lost and a disciple. I think that identity crisis comes from one of two things. One, we don't know it's what we're called to do. We, we just, we haven't realized, like, no, this is actually how people grew in their faith in Scripture. This is why so many people are saying, where's God in all of this? Why am I not growing? Why is there no joy? Why is there no passion? Because we're not doing the thing that he called us to do. So how can we expect to have the kind of results that, he, that, that we see in Scripture? The other reason, though, for many of us, and unfortunately, if you're in this room, you kind of fall in this category now because I'm telling you everything, is we know but we're like, I don't know if I want to do that. We haven't decided. We haven't taken the job, right? We're like, we're, like, we're like somebody living in their mom's basement forever, saying, like, I'm going to get to it one day. I'm going to get around to it one day, right? I'm sorry if you live in a basement. There's a lot of nice basements around here. Um, I know there's some man caves, and Tom, Tom doesn't like man caves, though, so no man caves either. But you're like somebody who's like, failure to launch here, okay? Like, I'm going to get around to it. I'm going to get onto it one day. I'm going to get the job one day. I'm going to move on with my life one day. I'm going to grow up one day, but I'm not ready yet. I'm not there yet. I'm not, I'm not ready. We've seen the call, but we haven't yet taken it upon and we haven't taken ownership of it. We haven't grabbed it. So why? Why would, why, why would we do that? If it costs us, and yes, I said it was true in the beginning. This is true. If you believe the Bible's true, and if you believe what God's word says is true, then that should be reason enough. But the fact is, for many of us, that's not reason enough. Like, what could possibly make me want to do something like this? And first and foremost, I would say this, because it brings with it a deep and profound and true sense of joy. Joy. How did the disciples feel? Joyful. Even in suffering and even in trial, they were joyful. And they were encouraging groups of people that they loved more than anything who they knew were going to experience trial. And what did they say to them? They said, be joyful. You'll find joy in this. Following Christ and doing this, living this way, leads to a life of pro profound joy. That for many of us seems like crazy. The other reason why we do this is because we believe in some sense that we, individually, each one of us, is actually better with unbelievers in our lives than we are without them. Think about that for a second. How, how's that, how would that be true, right? How would it be true that we'd be better with unbelievers in our lives than without them? Well, think about the prodigal son. How would the older brother, the one that stayed, the one that was self-righteous and legalistic, and religious, how would he have ever known where he was standing with the father? How would he have ever even seen that side of the father? 
had the younger brother not run away and come back? How about the younger brother? How would he have known to come back? How would he have known what it is to be a part of the household if he didn't know from the older brother that this is what it is to be a part of the household? You stay. The fact is, if we only know one kind of person, if we only surround ourselves with believers and we actually think we can only really benefit from them, we can only really learn from them, then we will only see part of who God is because we will only see him work in certain ways. I have talked with, over the past few years, I have talked with countless pastors and evangelists and church planters and denominational leaders who have asked some of these questions about how does the church do this? And the common thread I have found through every one of those that I talk to who is seeing fruitfulness happen and multiplication happen is this. It is this one thing. They genuinely believe deep down in their heart that they can benefit from being in a relationship with somebody who is outside the church or somebody who is immature in their faith. They say, they say, I have met people who are better at loving than I am. I have met people who are sometimes more gracious even than I am, which is crazy because I have the gospel. I have met people who are more courageous than I am. I have met people who have wisdom more than I do right now. I don't have a monopoly on those things because I believe in the gospel and I follow Jesus. You can't ever really be in a relationship with somebody if you see it as one way. Because then it's nothing but charity. And it's nothing but a giving out and never receiving back in. Now, when we start to talk that way, we start to get kind of nervous. And go, oh, hang on a second. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Are we going to change everything now? So here's the good news. This is why I like being, this is why I like being the, 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 the guy up here with this thing, okay? Here's the good news. The good news is this, okay? This won't change. Okay, God's word won't change. The gospel won't change. No matter who comes in, no matter who you talk to, no matter how much your life changes or how much your circumstances change or how much the groups of people that you're around change, this won't change. That is what the authors in the New Testament talked about. That is what Paul was doing what he was doing because of. He was saying, oh, I'm gonna make sure that as you live in these places full of non-believers, and you live every part of your life amongst them, I will make sure that you don't let the gospel get distorted. I will make sure that you don't cheapen God's grace by removing his commandments, the expectation he has for righteousness. And so we can know where the line is, and we can know that, that there can be people in our lives. And I can say this from personal experience. I can say that there, are, that there are many people in my life who don't know Jesus who I benefit from being in relationship from. And so it makes it more than just charity. It makes it more than just me doing something because I'm supposed to. And it makes it easier to do it when I don't experience the joy all the time. Is I say, and I ask myself this, I go, like, when I'm honest with myself, I go, there are times that I've been pretty tolerant of wasting time with Christians. And by that, I mean thinking, as long as I'm hanging around Christians all the time, then it's, it's, then it's good for me somehow. Then it's good somehow. And I look back and I often go like, but that hasn't always been true. There have been times when I've just been wasting time. And instead, we're called to live as the people the New Testament did. We're called to live as, as, as the church does in this way, by being sent out and going out. 
And what we have to do is we have to find ways to make this as accessible as possible. We have to take God's word and say, what makes it difficult for people to understand it and to hear it and to receive it? How can we do some of the work of helping to make it accessible to them? Not changing it, not lessening it, not adding on to it. We need to be a church that says, come here for Jesus, even if you aren't like us. We have to say, I can talk to people who don't agree with me without compromising what I believe. So the first time, uh, on the first week of this series, I said, read. If we're going to stay in the gospel, if we're going to be uh, understanding it and living on it, living in light of it, then, then, then read your Bible. Don't just rely on what other people are telling you all the time. Don't just rely on everything else, secondhand, anything. Read the Bible. And we have a reading plan, and we have a bookmark in your bulletin. We're going to update it every month. We're going to make sure that if you want to read along with us, then you can. The other thing that I said last week, does anybody remember what I said last week? Oh, man, that's why you don't ask that question. It's on the other side of the bookmark. Pray, good, yeah, pray. Okay, we can talk all day about, about discipling people about reaching the lost, but the fact of the matter is, if our heart doesn't break for them, and if we don't actually have a heart for them, then we won't really do it. It'll just be an obligation. And so begin to pray. Think of people that God has put in your life who need to be discipled by you. These are people in your family. These are people that you, that you work with. These are people at our church. Think about people who don't know Jesus. Think about people that are so far away from Jesus that it's hard to write their name on a list. And start praying for people. And start asking God to do things in their life and in their heart and in your life and in your heart. He will answer those prayers. The one for this week is like the best one though, okay? It's this, okay? We start with a party, right? Like I knew it, I knew there was gonna be an event. Not what you think though. I have been completely blown away in the four months that I've been here at this church by the, by the kind of community that I've experienced here. Okay, I'm not exaggerating to say it's unlike the community I've experienced anywhere else, in a good way. That there is a greater sense of family, a greater ability to gather, and to not just do it over, you know, like hanging out and fellowshipping and, and shallow conversation, but to actually talk about real and meaningful things, to actually challenge one another. I've seen that here in this church, as many of you have, and hopefully that's why you're here. So what we have to do is we have to, we have to bring that out from the walls of this church, right? Rather than say, which has made sense up till this point, come to our church and experience this community. We have to recognize that just as Jesus said, you'll know my disciples by the way that you love one another, by the way that we're able to love, okay? We then say, how do we bring that out? Well, here's the good news. We're really good at it. We're really good at it. We're really good at gathering people. We're really good at like making things fun and getting to know people. We're really good at talking about the things that matter. We're pretty good at that. And so how do we take those skills and those abilities and the things that we've learned how to do well in the church and do them outside the church at our jobs and our neighborhoods and our schools with our families, all those things. So the challenge is this. You and probably another person, because it's never fun to do stuff on your own. You and another person, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a friend, whoever it is, this year, I'm giving you a year, throw a party. Throw a party for people who are not here. Figure out the best way to gather people 
and to have community with those people. You can have a tea, you can have a craft party, you can, you can play cards with people, you can do all kinds of things, you can get a disco ball and dance, I don't care. Whatever gets you excited. But think about it. And what you'll probably find, as many find, is that as soon as we have something that tangible as a goal in our mind, we begin to go, whoa, what would it take for me to get there? I'm not saying invite people to a party and then, who, and then like if no one shows up, it's okay. You get to check it off the list. No, I'm saying throw a party. And for many of us, it starts with saying, I've got no one. I've got no one. I've got nobody that I could gather. I've got nobody that I could get to know in that way. I've got nobody that I can have that kind of community with out there that I have here. So great. That's the first step. Start praying. Start asking God to show you who it is that he wants to give you the ability to do this with. I know it sounds like such a weird step, right? The first step is that. But that's the way that we get here. The way that we get there is by saying, here's what we're called to do. We're going to do it together built on the gospel. And we're going to take the next step. Even if it seems like a slow step. Because if this church can be as good at bringing community and the love of Christ out there as we do here, and we have done a good job of bringing it out there, don't get me wrong. We are known in this community for loving the community. And I think now it's time for us to take that next step of saying like, how do we form these really good relationships with people outside the community who don't believe in Jesus? and who aren't on the same page as all of us inside the walls of this church. So that's the goal. Read, pray, party. That's what we're about now. So, you know, let's pray. Yeah. Father, we thank you for the fact that you do promise joy, Father. Um, you don't promise happiness. You don't promise an easy life but you do give us joy. Um, I feel that for me, God, the most growth in this area has simply come with my ability to be honest with myself. Honest with myself about what I want, honest with myself about what I'm afraid of, and honest with myself about how effective the things I'm doing are. I pray that you would give all of us that honesty, the ability to really honestly look and say, um, is what I'm doing getting me closer to this thing that Jesus has called me to, or, or is it not? I pray that you'd help us to begin reevaluating our lives and our ministries and our church. God, we're not getting rid of everything. We're not changing everything. But this is a question that we're going to start asking together. And so I pray that as we do, we would experience a great sense of unity and that we would see you alive and at work in the midst of that, Father. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I, um, I think that it's easy in talking about the how to have it come across almost like it's, like it's criticism, you know, of like, you know, what we've done up to this point, what the church has done up to this point. And it isn't criticism as much as actually hopefulness for how we change moving forward. And I say that because, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the world is constantly changing. Our culture is constantly changing. And we have a tendency to say, no, 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 but it's, it's, it's harder now. It's different now. It's changed now in a way that it never was before. And that's not true. The fact is, we have to continue to look at the world around us, just as people in the Bible did, and we have to say, if this is the gospel, then how do we, as a, as a, as a room full of priests, as a church of priests, be a bridge, bringing that thing to the people that we know? And we take some ownership of the culture that we live in, and we say, I'm a part of this too. And so I can relate, and I can understand. Um, I say that because I think overall, I'm, 
overwhelmed with hopefulness for the future. God has us here, right now, alive. He's not back yet, okay? Um, I hope he's not, because I, I would have missed it, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Which means we keep going, and we keep working, and he has more that he wants to accomplish in us. And so the best that we can do is be hopeful that he will do that. Amen? Amen. All right, God bless you guys. See you next week.